0: Welcome to TAPCAST. I'm your host, Chloe Wozniak. In today's episode, I sit down with Professor Michael Weingart from the Rutgers Department of Mathematics. We talk about a couple of courses for non-mathematics majors that he's been highly involved in, as well as his efforts to create hybrid and flipped versions of these courses. I ask him what is a hybrid course and the difference between that and a flipped course we also talk about the pros and cons of such a model and what it takes to create one. Finally, I ask him for advice for those interested in creating their own hybrid courses. Let's get started. So let's start with, um, tell us a little bit about your background and your current role at Rutgers.
1: Sure. So the background uh, and how I got here is quite an unusual story. So I loved mathematics all through my K-12 years. I was blessed with wonderful teachers, uh, and there's no substitute for having wonderful teachers. Uh, Sadly, when I got to college, uh, the pedagogic experience was not quite the same in my mathematics courses, but I did have a wonderful experience learning in some other areas that I had already been interested in, I ended up majoring in, double majoring in classics and philosophy. Now, I always had the idea that I wanted to teach at the college level, uh, and so there was some question of of, uh, just which direction I would take um, specifically, but at the end of college, I really just needed to be outside the academic setting for at least a while. Through a series of bizarre uh, coincidences in terms of events, I ended up working on Wall Street. So I ended up trading commodity options on the floor, so jumping up and down, yelling and screaming <laughs> with the hand signals and the flamboyant jackets and all of that. And I did that for um, uh, a long time when you consider that that kind of work ages you at a rate of five years per year, okay. right? So I'm, I'm actually much older than uh, my, uh, my driver's license says. Uh, So, uh, at some point along the way, though, uh, I actually needed to understand the mathematics underlying what I was doing much better. Uh, That got me back into the mathematics, which I was always sorry about having left um, because I, I was genuinely interested in it. And I started taking classes on the side on a part-time basis and loved it, absolutely loved it. Uh, so one thing led to another. I ended up getting a master's and also teaching some of that mathematics. that was pertinent to the underlying theory of, behind the trading to my colleagues and really enjoyed the teaching experience. So I knew I wanted to do mathematics. I knew I wanted to teach. Great, so I'm all set. Now Now it's time uh, to, to go for the PhD. That brought me to Rutgers, uh, and I have never left. Okay. Um, so in uh, now... Um, I am uh, associate teaching professor of mathematics. That is an actual job title, uh, okay. associate teaching professor of. Uh, that is uh, that reflects a new track that the university has created, following the example of other universities that have created a, a teaching track as such. There are teaching faculty as such, uh, and this is this is an actual career track. These are not itinerant laborer positions. These this is a this is a these are long term. They're, they're not tenured positions, but. Uh, indispensability is the new tenure. That's that's my motto. Um, so the uh, more specifically, the, the current title is Associate Undergraduate Vice Chair and Director of Curriculum Development. Um, don't try fitting that on a business card. <laughs> um, it, it fits in an email barely. Um, but uh, so so the uh, the first half of that uh, has to do with various administrative duties in the department involving putting together the teaching schedule and, and things like this, uh, and. Um, the 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 director of curriculum development part brings us closer to the content of this conversation that has to do with implementing various curriculum initiatives especially having to do with active learning
0: so you've been um involved in our department's 10x courses mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what those are
1: sure so just to to be clear uh for the listen- listeners 10x means 103 104 106 uh-huh. Uh, 107, 108, 109, and what we fondly call 1010. Okay. <laughs> we, we ran out of digits. What happened to 101 and 102? Well, this is Rutgers. We don't have 101 and 102. Of <laughs> um, and, and what about 105? That's a placeholder for certain transfer courses. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so 103, 104, and 106 specifically are courses in mathematics. These are non-remedial courses uh, in mathematics that students take. As part of their general education, they are designed not merely to be boxes that people check off on the way towards fulfilling their core curriculum requirements, but they are really designed to be coherent parts of students' liberal educations. Um, and these are not, these are specifically not on the pre calculus calculus track, uh, and they appeal mainly to students whose majors and other requirements do not require them to take a course that is on the pre calculus calculus track. Um, so, uh, so that is a valuable, it, it's a valuable opportunity for students to, who think of themselves as not the strongest math students to discover that, first of all, they can do it. And it's, it's uh, one of the gratifying things about teaching the course is encountering students who, who say, oh my gosh, I never thought I, I could do mathematics, but it turns out that I can. Um, so it's wonderful for them to, to realize that and it's, it's, the content is just important to people's educations. So just to give one example uh, to illustrate sort of the level of these courses and how, and why everyone should take them. Um, from 104, so, what, so first let me say what, what the courses are about. 103 is, um, intro, is um, sorry, topics in mathematics for the liberal arts. In, in, in spite of that title, uh, the topics don't vary from semester to semester. They are a fixed set of topics. And the courses evolved uh, toward that set of topics over a long period of time, uh, and they have to do with Voting theory, so there's mathematics behind understanding different ways that elections can be run and the paradoxes that we run into when we look for a supposedly ideal voting system. Punchline, there is none. Spoiler alert, (laughs) there is is none. Um, uh, Measuring power, so for example, in the electoral college, what share of the real power does California actually have? It's not as simple as counting what proportional share of electoral votes it has. It's actually more complicated than that. Okay, this is important to understanding the the dynamics not only there but in parliamentary uh, democracies. Um, how the how the real um, power distribution works. The UN Security Council. We talk about that. Uh, the um, the mathematics of apportionment. So how. The data from the census is used to apportion representatives to states. Uh, that turns out to be very interesting and a contentious topic in American history. There are a number of different mathematical methods you can use to do the apportionment. Each one has advantages and disadvantages. Um, and uh, well, what's the ideal one? Well, spoiler alert: there is none. <laughs> of course, um, they, they, they're, 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 but these are actual. There are actually theorems to the effect that there is none. Um, The the fair division of goods, if um, roommates are are, uh, moving out after four wonderful years at Rutgers together and they have to decide who gets what, uh, there are techniques, there are are ways of making precise what we mean by the word fair, okay, Um, and... uh, Not that mathematics can tell you what your values are, but once you know what your values are, math can make them more precise. Uh, And then techniques for actually carrying out the division. And then uh, there is some financial mathematics at the end of the course, which is stuff that that everyone should know. Uh, That subject matter about financial mathematics, um, how how certain loans work, how student loans work in particular, uh, that actually gets blown up into an entire other course, 106, um, that I think really everyone should take. Uh, It's really quite illuminating to understand how debt really works and how time is your enemy inherently when you are in debt. Um, Not everyone understands this and people need to. Um, 104 uh, is Introduction to Probability. So it's 106, the the financial math course is called Mathematics of Money. Uh, 104 uh, is called Introduction to Probability. It is a concrete introduction to what can be a very difficult subject. 104 is certainly the most difficult of those three courses, um, and and that's one actually I actually I want to give an example from that, that will illustrate what sort of level the courses are on and why everyone should take them. So when my mother was uh, late uh, in her life, near the end of her life, and in the hospital, uh, to, long story short, the, do- the doctor tried to BS me with statistics, um, and I uh, it, it was a it was a particular. If you, if you know a moderate amount of probability, you can sort through the inconsistency of the numbers that were presented. And um, I couldn't quite believe that I was being BS with statistics like that. I checked with my cousin, who's also a mathematician, and he confirmed that, yes, you're being BS with statistics. Um, and so I thought, well, OK. Well, it, and realizing that, that the numbers didn't add up, that influenced what decision we made. And it turned out, I won't go into details, it was the right decision. And, well, thank God. So uh, what does that say? Well, what are people supposed to do who don't, who don't have PhDs in mathematics? And that was really an inspiration for creating the course. Um, the, the course, it has certain um, distinctive approaches that I have not found in any textbook on the subject. Um, and so it, it's really meant to be a, a concrete approach that implements the ideas of a certain cognitive scientist, Gerd Gigerenzer, who works in Berlin, um, to, to give an idea. So it, it tries as much as possible to understand probability in terms of natural frequencies rather than in crunching the decimals and fractions and percentages of the probabilities themselves. Let me explain what that means. Your friend calls you up and says, I'm so scared, I've just tested positive for this dreadful disease, and the test, the doctor said, is 99% accurate. And, it, and that test, it's 99% accurate, told me I have the disease. So here's what what you um, might want to say in response. Well, what percentage of the population uh, actually has the disease? And then your friend says, well, the doctor said it's a tenth of 1% of the population actually has the disease. When doctors are presented with these numbers, and then they are asked, well, in light of the fact that a tenth of 1% of the population actually has the disease, and the test is 99% accurate, doctors are are then asked, um, or whoever's asked, What's the probability that your, your distraught friend really has the disease? Uh, doctors give wildly inflated estimates of how likely your friend is actually to have the disease. Here's the reasoning, and when you look at it the right way, it makes so much sense, right? Um, so uh, there are hundreds of millions of people in the United States, hundreds of millions. One percent of them are receiving a false test result so that means that the number of people receiving an incorrect test result is, is in the single digit millions how many people actually have the disease well that's a ten, that the given information is that's a tenth of one percent a tenth of one percent of hundreds of millions of people is hundreds of thousands of people so there are hundreds of thousands of people who actually have the disease of the hundreds of millions who don't Single digit millions of them are being falsely scared by the test. So, your friend might be one of the hundreds of thousands who actually have the disease, or one of the millions who receive a false positive. And if that's the only information you have, then it's more likely, much more likely, your friend has just gotten a false positive. So, so, so people should know this. And, and when you reason it out like that, it, it, it makes total sense. So the the goal of these courses is to present mathematics that will otherwise be difficult in a way that is accessible. It'll be challenging but accessible. That's our motto, challenging but accessible. These are not meant to be easy courses, but they are certainly not meant to to weed anyone out. Uh, Our sincere hope is that everyone will work hard and do well.
0: So you created a hybrid version of one of these courses. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like?
1: Sure. Uh, Let's first distinguish between hybrid and flipped. Okay, so hybrid means that the course is partially online and partially in person. That means in particular that there is, in in this case, it means specifically one 80-minute class meeting per week and a substantial portion of online work. Now, what is that online work? Well, this is where the flippedness comes in. Uh, The idea is that instead of coming in twice a week and hearing instructors give traditional lectures where for the most part we lecture and students take down notes uh it might be more active there are ways of making it more active than that and we'll come back to that but but the the traditional paradigm is the instructor instructs and the students receive mostly in a passive kind of way uh, and then perhaps they go home and puzzle over their notes later what we're doing instead in these hybrid courses is that students work through, I don't like to say watch, but work through video lectures or video presentations of the content at home, on their own time, at their own pace. They, um, each video is not just a recording of me at the blackboard. Instead, uh, what they, see, they don't see me. They see a, um, a, a printed page with me annotating it. Uh, and, or, or there are other graphics that they see, and I'm, I'm doing a voiceover talking through it, presenting very much the same sort of content that I would present in the live classroom. At the end of each video, the, these individual videos are short, at the end of each video is a question that the students must answer before they go on to the next video. And the next video begins with the solution. So they work through these. It, it does not work if you just set up a playlist. Right. Okay. You really have to go through each video one at a time and work through it before you go on to the next one. Uh, it is possible, if you really want to, to set up a playlist. Mm-hmm. All these videos are on my publicly accessible YouTube channel. Okay. Um, so so I, I know students do set up playlists, and, and that's fine. Um, but when they're initially learning subject matter, they, they work through the videos one at a time. Then at the end of that process, there are still some homework problems that are more of the bread and butter variety that they, um, to which they submit solutions electronically via Sakai. This is usually, you know, a full day or day and a half before the actual class meeting. Um, That way they're not rushing at the very end to to complete the preparation. And also I have a chance to look over their work and give them feedback. Then they come into class that one day a week and they start with a quiz. They they, they can ask me some questions first. Um, but, um, but we essentially start with a quiz that holds them responsible for you know, making sure they really did their preparation, without which the whole model doesn't work. They really have to have done the preparation at home. Um, and, and then we quickly go over the quiz, and the, but the main block of time in that precious 180-minute session a week, the, the main activity is active learning on not just new problems, but problems at the next higher level of sophistication. So it's very deliberately scaffolded in that way, that the, the problems they have to solve when they're initially learning the subject matter um, are at a, a simpler level. And then when they have an instructor available to ask questions of and the, when they have the opportunity to, to really wrestle with these things and bounce ideas off one another, that's, the, uh, that, that's where the, 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 the target level of sophistication is being addressed and is meant to be achieved.
0: So you mentioned that the model doesn't work if they haven't done the preparation. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you do if a student comes to class and they haven't done the preparation, so they're they're not prepared to do the in-class activity?
1: Make them feel guilty. Okay. okay. Uh, so, no, in all, it, so, so in all seriousness, um, coming to class, for students to come to class without having done that preparation undermines the entire enterprise. Mm-hmm. The whole premise uh, is that that people are have a... Reasonably good understanding of of what they encountered in the the video lectures, uh, and they have had ample opportunity to ask questions before they even come to class. Right. So part and, and we we really make this clear to the students before the course even begins, uh, what the deal is. Some instructors actually have the students sign a contract, uh, which is a nice uh, approach. Um, th- that it really uh, we really make a point of. Disabusing those students who have it of the false notion, the very false notion that half the class meetings per week means half the work. That is emphatically false. That is emphatically false. Um, it really requires, frankly, a higher level of discipline. I don't think it's actually more work, net. It's just a higher level of discipline to stay current with, uh, the, the subject matter of the course. So we make that clear to the students before the course even begins. We reinforce it along the way in a, an encouraging way, in, um, in, in a way that, that really warmly invites students to ask questions via com- by coming to office hours, uh, by, um, and those office hours may be partly in person and partly virtual. Uh, there is a Sakai chat room that's always open some students make wonderful use of the Sakai chat room and answer each other's questions which I absolutely love I, I, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing um, and uh, you know, this is they, they have signed up to take a partially online course. Part of the deal, and we phrase it this way, them, part of the deal is okay. So they, they they have the quote unquote benefit. Many of them see it that way of only having to come to class once a week. In exchange for that benefit, and they respond to that that way of thinking. In exchange for that benefit, they incur certain obligations, and they they take on a certain understanding. Well, okay, so it's a partially online course. That means that that there are online mechanisms for various things, uh, and. Getting help outside of class is one of those mechanisms right so students are, are very warmly invited to take advantage of all of those opportunities. I, I wish they did it more. now, having said that, it is still the case. I, I understand the human element um, frankly, perhaps we'll talk more about this later i I do miss the personal interact the, the personal closeness uh, that the, the rapport that you establish that you can only really establish face-to-face, and that's why I wouldn't want to have a fully online version of these courses. And there is somewhat less of that rapport in the hybrid version, and I'm sorry for that. Um, So I understand why students might want to save up some questions for when they come and see me in person, perhaps just even right before class. That's fine. I understand that, and I really try to make sure that, that that opportunity exists before class. Uh, there really isn't time in those 80 minutes, though, those precious 80 minutes, to, uh, to take up much of that time with, with answering questions from the homework right. as such.
0: So what about if the students, they've, they've done the preparation ahead of time, mm-hmm. but they get to class and they're, they're hesitant for whatever reason to participate how would you handle that?
1: Sure, sure, partly by way of answering that question, partly just one more thought about the the previous one. if a student comes to class and feels somewhat shaky they, they've they've sincerely done the preparation, but they still feel shaky about their understanding um they've really done everything I've asked them to, and I can understand why a student in that situation wouldn't be so forthcoming in their group work with their their classmates. Uh, it is not an entirely bad thing if they are it is not a waste of their groupmates' time if their groupmates now have the experience. Of verbalizing the explanation of how they've understood the subject matter in the course of working through these problems. So there will be a certain amount of my coming around. I'm, I'm re- I've got on my my '90s era rollerblades. think okay. and, and it's a good thing not I didn't throw those away. Okay. Um, so so uh, I you know you know flitting about from table to table, really trying to you know. Uh, Engage all the individual students and in all the groups. Uh, we now have LAs, learning assistants, in all of our hybrid courses, which is a wonderful thing. Um, and uh, and so so that those interaction, those opportunities exist to to help fill in gaps uh, and and help um, coax students out of their their um, the, the the hesitation that's based on not having fully understood. But then there is the hesitation to participate that comes from either just having a shy personality or having no familiarity with this mode of learning. Right? So the, the, for many students, this is the first time they've ever had to do anything like this in a classroom, certainly the first time they've had to do this in anything like a math or other physical sciences classroom, uh, which is unfortunate because in, in this subject, as in any other you don't know what it is that you don't know until you try to explain it to someone else so even outside of a of an active learning environment even outside of a flipped classroom environment my advi- my very sincere advice to students who are preparing for a math exam is to study with other people and try to explain things to one another you real it's incredibly uh, valuable it's hard it's but but that's so, but something crucial happens in, in the process of trying to, to verbalize that understanding, uh, something that's that's beneficial to both parties, right? Um, and and th- then there are even disagreements that can come up if people have understood things in a different way or... There's a dispute that may, may, or there's a concern. Maybe someone has understood something incorrectly. Maybe there's a subtle point. There are lots of subtle points uh, in mathematics, even, quote unquote, even at at this, quote unquote, elementary level. Uh, So so there are are substantial benefits, and that's part of the speech we give that it is advantageous to the students themselves to, to push themselves to verbalize. Their understanding, or even their incomplete understanding. There's also a built-in incentive that the, the second round of problems, the ones that they are working on in this active learning format in the classroom during class time, they're going to have to write up their own individual solutions to them and submit them a couple of days after class uh, electronically. Um, and so they have a, a very strong incentive to make the most of that time um, and um, and and try to, to work through the problems as best they can. For the most part, students buy into this. There is still some shyness that can be hard to overcome. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't get him to sing and dance. <laughs> right. um, so, um, and and uh, I, uh, I I understand that um, you know some people. Some people are, are introverts, but, you know, I'm an introvert. And, uh, and, and uh, just be, be, being an introvert doesn't mean um, that, that, you, uh, that you are unwilling or, or unable to, to verbalize thoughts. It, 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 the, uh, the, the skill of, of coming out of your shell, if you're not naturally inclined to do so, is very valuable. And it's, um, look, all of this is, is the student's training for real life. That, that's what all this is ultimately about. Um, and, and one of the reasons why every aspect of this format is good for them. The, 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 there is an extra level of independence and discipline that's required for them to work through the, the videos on their own time and get them all done and get their assignments submitted via Sakai. Um, no one is literally standing over them making them sit in their seats the way someone is literally standing over them making them sit in their seats during a traditional lecture. Um, so, so that discipline is something that serves them well to learn that they need to do anyway. And quite frankly, we, in academics, hear this from people in business all the time. One of the one of the skills that people need in work environments is the ability to communicate in speech and writing with their colleagues, right? You 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 can't just be the the caricature of the of the, the mathematician um, who um, either stares at your shoes while talking to you or stares right. at his or her own shoes. Uh, it, it, it's it's um, it's important to be able to do this sort of a thing. And we, we remind students gently that it, re- it really is in their near-term and long-term interest mm-hmm. to, to be able to do this kind of a thing.
0: So since you have all of this online material, it sounds like um, there's a pretty – uh, organized setup to the course. Yes. But how flexible is this? What would you do if you realize that students overall are really struggling with a particular topic? Is there room to move things around?
1: Yes and no. So th- they're moving things around in the sense of changing the timetable of the course. The answer is not within that semester, not really. Um, there is just too much overhead in terms of time and and careful production that goes into putting it all together, um, in the in the longer term, yes, there is the ability. Once you realize that certain things are causing students trouble, that means I have to go back to the drawing board and reconsider pacing or reconsider um, you know revising materials, re- re-recording videos, things like this. However. Um, the product the creation of the hybrid versions occurred after a long process of teaching really the same content also with a lot of active learning built into it in a traditional two face-to-face meeting a week format so it was no mystery what, what were the hard topics what required a bit more time and a, a broader range of examples in the initial presentation, um, this was this was not a mystery going into the process of creating the videos. Uh, so that that really helped. That really really helped. It would have been um, I, I think it would not nearly have gone so well if uh, if it hadn't been for that background of having already taught exactly that subject matter for a long time uh, and to, to that very same audience and really gotten to to know. Uh, what's challenge? What level of, of challenge it can it can handle? Now, now it, it's still possible that an individual student. That, so, so I, 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 it drives me nuts when people say, "Well, in the aggregate, uh, we have we have we have empirically determined that, that this is the best way to do things." Well, if I have thirty five students in front of me, and one of them is utterly clueless about what's going on. Uh, in spite of working hard and trying his or her best, well, I am hundred percent. I'm just as responsible for that one person who's having a hard time as for all the others. So don't tell me about the aggregate. Um, so um, you know, every student counts, and so there is there is room within the framework of meeting outside of class to to, to go over things in the same way that you would in a face to face class. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, Part of what addresses this uh, will come up in a I think later in our conversation about the relative benefits of, of this model over the, the traditional one and actually how it, it it makes life easier for for a student to um, to, to hang in there if they would a, a student who would have found the subject matter difficult either way um, It should be said that in t- that I, I I will grant that shoehorning ourselves into the those that, that that setup where there are only those eighty precious minutes of official face to face time a week does place some limits on flexibility, right? In the sense that there would be there would be more time to to build into those eighty minutes addressing difficulties students have had with what they have already worked through at home as opposed to what I'd ideally like to spend the time on, which is addressing the challenges they face encountering the new level of sophistication in the new round of problems. Um, If we had, and there's no reason we couldn't do this, if we had a flipped but two-meeting-per-week course, so same structure in terms of what students do at home, but they just come in twice a week instead of once a week, no reason we couldn't do that, um, and part of the plan for the near future for this coming year is that we're going to try and implement that. Um, there, Frankly, there would be a bit more opportunity during face-to-face class time to answer some of those questions pertaining to the homework.
0: So um, you said you you'd taught this course in the traditional format for a while. Mm-hmm. What was the goal of creating a hybrid version, and, and what provided the push to actually make that happen?
1: All right. Uh, this is this is all this addresses this this is the key question okay. of our conversation I think, um, and if I may separate it out I, implicitly, mm-hmm. um, I, I, uh, I I don't want to interviewee explain your question to <laughs> no, you, um, but but I think that implicitly uh-huh. there are two questions embedded in what you just asked, okay. um, even about the goal of creating the hybrid version, and that is to say. Um, what is the goal of implementing active learning uh, in the way that we've done it? And, and what is the goal of the hybrid version, of the, the flipped hybrid version as such? Um, because there are a number of ways of implementing active learning. Uh, and uh, that, that is a larger project that, that we are trying to, to work on. So so active learning, that means a learning process in which the students are directly engaged in doing something st- Speaking, answering questions, um, submitting answers via clickers in a lecture, doing think, pair, share activities with the person sitting next to them, which can be done even in a large lecture. Um, Things like this largely group work oriented framework of what happens in the classroom uh, in, a, in a smaller setting with the instructor circulating and maybe in L.A. circulating. Uh, there, these are all various ways of implementing active learning, and there is a ton of evidence. There, is a, uh, there, are, there are approximately 2.6 boatloads of evidence okay. um, that, that this produces substantial benefits in stu- student learning outcomes. There is so much evidence of this, uh, both of effect sizes and of you know, just the it, both in terms of the effect size and in terms of the the, the volume and reliability of the evidence uh, that it has com- it has persuaded the the conference board of mathematical sciences. Okay. CBMS, uh, which is an umbrella organization of of American mathematical associations that includes the MAA, the Mathematical Association of America, and uh, very tellingly the AMS, the American Mathematical Society, um, which is very much research-oriented as opposed to teaching-oriented as such, but is also concerned with teaching issues. Even the AMS, um, which, uh, which many of our colleagues look to as... Um, playing a defining role in in, um, sort of establishing what our profession is about, Uh, even these have signed on to a rather enthusiastic statement, rather emphatic statement about the importance of introducing active learning into our mathematics classrooms. Um, Frankly, we as a profession are behind, and Rutgers specifically is behind, um, and that is I, I said, say that not by way of faulting anyone, um, but rather in the spirit of let's um, let's make this happen. Let's uh, you know we, we owe it to our students uh, to provide for them the best opportunity to to learn in the most effective way. Um, so, so that is why introducing some kind of active learning. Is particularly important, and we were already doing that in the 10x courses before introducing the hybrid model. And we still are. We offer both uh, a two meeting per week traditional but active learning oriented model that we've been doing for years, and we, we now have the, the hybrid model, uh, so students can pick which one is right for them. Uh, in fact, I, something I go around saying to anyone who will listen, and many who won't, um, and, but, but it, it, it's worth continuing to make this point. The goal here is most emphatically not to replace one model with another, but rather to implement several different models and give the students the opportunity to figure out which is best for them. And that's a difficult process from the student's point of view because, of course, they don't even know what's best for them, okay. but, but the hope is that we will um, make known to them clearly enough what their options are and do the best possible job we can of making these various formats effective. Now, um, why—okay, okay, so, so what, what is the active learning that goes on already um, th- that, that, that existed prior to, to flipping and hybridizing? So uh, what typically occurs in these 10X courses, frankly, any math course that I teach, is that, that um, I don't just talk at the students for 80 minutes while they feverishly copy down the notes mm-hmm. and then go and figure out what the heck I meant mm-hmm. later on. Um, instead, I present. Um, I We'll do some some annotating. I I don't write on a blackboard, but I I annotate a PDF, um, and and project it. And students have the PDF available beforehand before the annotations, and they have it av- available afterwards with the annotations. Um, but but the but that's not the, the main point anyway. The main point is, uh, th- there's reasons why th- there are reasons why these PDFs are available ahead of time with lots of blank space between problems. I pause, I shut the heck up and and invite the students to work individually or or in groups uh, on these problems and and try to take what I've just said and see if they can make some some progress towards solving the problems or this can be these can be short questions, these can be intermediate length questions. Uh, there's this back and forth process. Um, and it's challenging to implement that. It's challenge- and, and because, among other things, you are under the pressure to get through a certain amount of material before the, the end of the 80 minutes. So what about the hybrid flipped model? Well, uh, no matter how great we think we are at explaining mathematical ideas in the traditional model, uh, you explain something once, maybe, maybe somebody asks a question, maybe. Right. <laughs> I, I, we're so happy when somebody actually asks a question during class. Um, and, and you know we're, we're delighted also when, when we ask the students questions and solicit input and it isn't always the same one person answering. Maybe there are five people who are all willingly giving input. But for the most part, even with everything I've described it is still a largely passive experience in the classroom um, and even the students who are very actively doing the part about answer you know working on the problems that that are interspersed with the, the lecture segments they're not doing any verbalizing uh, of their their understanding or of their confusions so the the flipped the flippidness of the flipped model enables students to work at their own pace, and if they need to, to view something five times until they understand it, fantastic. They can, they can work through it five times until they understand it. And if they think they've understood it, and later on they're doing their homework, uh, and they realize they didn't understand it, they can go back and replay it another five times. This makes a huge difference. It makes a difference, I would think, in any field, but especially in something conceptual like mathematics. And especially for students who don't think of themselves as especially proficient in mathematics. But to be frank, this is true for mathematics students at all levels. Um, I I heard a, um, I won't identify him, but a very distinguished mathematician Whose, whose specialty is something that rhymes with schnumber theory okay. um, and um, who who, who uh, openly admitted, uh, who openly said that um, part of being a professional mathematician is learning to sleep with your eyes open because you go to these talks where you can't understand anything. And this is really a world-class guy. N- n- not someone from Rutgers, just so nobody is thinking, wait, is it? so no, 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 this is from another university, but... Uh, um, but, but that's a rather remarkable statement for someone to make, that, that, that even this truly brilliant person, I mean, this is so, someone I consider one of the smartest people I've ever met, um, says this openly about, about math talks. <laughs> um, so it made me feel... Um, much less inadequate yeah, about the times that, that I have I've been lost uh, d- during these talks we've all I think had that experience so the ability to, to go back and 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 watch things multiple times is really a substantial pedagogic advantage now uh, it's it's the ability to do that as many times as needed on the student's own schedule as needed uh, the the um, the, the the content is the same. Okay, that's a very important principle that the um, that that no content is being lost in this transition. Um, the, the the structure whereby there's a little bit of content followed by the opportunity to to practice it and solidify it by working on a problem that exists live in person that that exists in this flipped format as well. Um, the, um, the so students have as much. Times they need the ones who fly through it, um, great, good for them. Um, they they, uh, they don't need to, you know, they're not bored. Um, they, they they do it at their own quick pace. Um, the ones who need more time have more time, um, and uh, and and it also all right. So so there's there's that layer of it. There are also there's also the issue of the two layers of understanding. Right, and this is an important issue of pedagogic strategy and scaffolding. So, it's by design that the students are working through the level at one layer of understanding first, solidifying it, and once they've achieved that, then they go on to the next level of understanding that that's, that they're working through in the classroom. It's what what's usually the way that usually plays out in the traditional format is that you are you're devoting class mostly to what students could possibly assimilate in real time which is really just that first layer of understanding and then that that deeper layer of understanding well then they're sent home to the privacy and solitude of their dorm rooms or whatever and they're working through the more sophisticated level of the mathematics while I'm not there that's exactly backwards so so they don't particularly lose anything there, there there is a human element that's lost when they're working through the videos um, uh, as opposed to, to being in the classroom when they're learning re- receiving that first layer uh, but there is something very much lost in the traditional format when they're working on their homework um, alone without a, a professor or LA there um, this is one of the great advantages of the flipped model It's exactly when when they're working on the hard stuff that they are both verbalizing to classmates and working together with classmates, and that they can ask the questions on the harder layer layer of stuff and get immediate answers in that face-to-face back-and-forth conversation. I get to have, literally, a face-to-face conversation with every student in the class in every class meeting in the flipped format. There's no chance of that in a traditional format. Now, admittedly, those are brief. Right, typically, those are brief face-to-face conversations. But, but what a tremendous difference that is from that, that traditional format.
0: So once you made the decision to create this hybrid version, how do you go about designing? I mean, where do you even start with something like that?
1: All right. So um, again, par- partially by way of answering that question and partially by way of expanding on the, the, the previous points, so the, the um, creating the online materials is the big thing, right? That that's um, the big obstacle, and but it's a it's a very important opportunity to really craft in a very deliberate lay, way how you're going to structure the pedagogy and how you're going to pre- how to you're going to provide to the students materials that they can work with. That puts a lot of pressure on you to to choose carefully. Uh, how you make the the decisions in presenting the material, how you make the decisions in selecting what exactly those problems are going to be at each follow-up point uh, at the end of each video, what the the problems are going to be at the end of that that homework set, what the problems are going to be inside the classroom. Uh, Everything has to be laid out in a more regimented way, in part because it has to withstand the scrutiny of the multiple rewatchings. Arguably, we should be working that hard and setting up and, and that carefully in setting up our face-to-face courses, too. That, that is really That point is really worth making. Um, so one of the, it, it should be pointed out, partly by way of answering the question, what why create a hybrid in the first place? Once you've created these online materials, they are available, available for use in any format. They're available for use as supplementary materials in a traditional format. And that's what some instructors are actually doing, that they, they'll teach their regular traditional format. Um, they don't want students to stop coming to class. <laughs> right. Um, but they'll make the videos for that segment of the course available before the exam on that segment of the course, and so then students have the advantage of the rewatching. Uh, so that that's a, a nice uh, advantage of creating the materials. So w- once they've been created, they have that advantage. Um, the process of of creating them uh, requires a lot of the same thought process as in creating any course and that is to say working backwards from learning objectives you're really thinking carefully about what you want the students to be able to do at the end of the whole course but also at the various stages you want to think carefully well okay at the end of this process of working through the videos at home what do i realistically expect them to be able to do i don't want it to, i won't don't want the, to set the expectations too high and create frustration. I don't want to set them too low and under challenge the students. Right? So that requires a bit of reflection. Um, and but I also want to be sure that the preparation is there for them to work on that next level of more sophisticated problems in the group work. Um, so so carefully thinking through those layers of, of scaffolding is a crucial part of the process. I have to say, um, another part that people might not think about, in the case of both Hybrid 103 and 104, this was important. So in Hybrid, so long before even creating anything pertaining to the Hybrid version as such, uh, there was the process of creating a homemade textbook for the course, for 103 in particular. Um, so we worked for many years with a standard textbook that's used by many universities, um, and uh, it, we felt that it had its limitations, and every few years they'd come out with a new edition, and then we were we were vulnerable to the arbitrariness of they yank a chapter out, or they, they rearrange things in ways that don't make sense pedagogically, we don't think. Uh, and here we have this established way of teaching the course, and, um, and so uh, this led basically to, to turning um, notes I had put together into something that I, I would still only call course notes rather than a textbook, but it does function as the, the working textbook for the course. My indispensable co-author, Alice Sinieres, and I um, sat down one summer and, and, just, and just produced it. And we've been using it in the course ever since. Controlling the, uh, the, the course materials at the level of the, the written materials is um, absolutely crucial, I think, to the stability of the course. Uh, if you have a regular textbook that, that doesn't change over time, that you're truly happy with, and you're not, you're not adapting the course to the textbook, uh, but you've truly chosen a textbook that works for your course... If so, great. If you don't already have that textbook, um, I don't think there's a substitute for creating one. That's an awful lot of work. That's an awful lot of work, but it means that you can revise it as needed. You can correct mistakes as needed. You can shift content. You can put in new examples. You can update examples as needed. Uh, that's that's a terrific thing. You can change up the, the homework problems. Um, you can. All kinds of things like this. That process was, I think, a crucial first step. I, I couldn't tell the story of, of how how I created the hybrid course without telling the story of of how we put together the the book for the course. Um, and so the the that is that's an essential framework for then then just. Producing the videos themselves, so the, the I, I started out writing a transcript and then trying to, to dictate the transcript. Couldn't do it. Absolutely couldn't do it. I I, I don't speak anywhere near the way I write. I just couldn't do it, yeah. uh, and I couldn't begin to write a transcript that reflects the way I speak. Just, just can't do it. Can't do it. Um, so um, there is um, there is a certain there is a certain serendipity in how the 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 text of the the videos came out that reflects in some ways the serendipity of how lectures come out. And it would have been it would have come across as canned and artificial if I hadn't done it that way. So it was important to have a clear plan of what the content was going to be, but then there was still the process of actually making the videos. Uh, that, that was Awfully, awfully time-consuming. I went, part of the process was going to uh, a conference where, where mathematical colleagues from around the country talked about their experience doing exactly the sort of a thing. They, they, uh, one of them said that for every five minutes, five minutes, let's be careful about the units here, for every five minutes of completed edited video, it took four hours of work. And I heard this and thought, no way. Uh, no, 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 that can't be right. And it turns out that it was. Now, there is some, some wiggle room there. It's all about how much of a perfectionist you want to be, especially when it comes to the editing process. Uh, and there are, there, there are portions of these videos that, that came out better than others in terms of production quality, um, because at some point you just have to say enough is enough. But it, it is. Uh, but to to carry it out, um, I had to learn some new technology. Not that it's so advanced, but um, I, I had to re-record some things because I don't have a proper recording facility. To, to record in and um, very frustratingly, you know, if a, if a fire engine goes by oh, no. in the background <laughs> while you're recording something and you're not in a soundproof room in your house, which I don't have, of course. <laughs> uh, um, the, the, you know, so, so this is, there are various technical challenges as well as the conceptual ones.
0: So, so the videos are all made. Mm-hmm. The course has been running. Uh, does that mean you're done with it now, and it can just continue to run the way it's been running?
1: Oh, how I wish that were true. <laughs> oh, how I wish that were true. And I know that you know when <laughs> you ask that question that that that, that um that, no it, it's uh it it's never done. It's uh, but quite frankly, a regular course is never done. I mean, if you if you approach a regular course in a careful way, a course that you teach it. Every year, your entire career, you're still revising your notes. You're updating your examples. Uh, there are um, there are fields that that change over time, and and that that generate new new knowledge, but also just new examples of things. Uh, and for that reason alone, there there are needs to make changes, even in a regular course. But also, you get to know your students and and how. Um, You explain things to them better or worse. Um, There may be ways that you, uh, over time, even in a regular course, adapt the course to things like introducing clickers in the classroom that prompt you to set things up differently. So there are going to be ways that you revise your course anyway. Um, And I think that it's so important not to think of a hybrid or fully online course as being done, just because you've produced the video materials, even though it's a god-awful amount of work to produce all those video materials. And I have to say, the prospect of going back and re-recording everything is daunting. That's one of the reasons why you you, you want to set it up so that you don't have to re-record everything. So there are good reasons. There are two good reasons for recording the videos in short chunks. One is it's just a good design practice. People's Attention spans are not that long, but also you don't want to be talking at them for too long before they have to do something, that is, pause the video and, and work on a problem. Right, So there are good pedagogic reasons for keeping the chunks short, uh, but also it makes it easier to go back and re-record a six-minute chunk rather than a 30-minute chunk. Okay. Uh, so so there is certainly uh, a a need to go back and... And re-record things for the sake of changing content. There is a need to re-record things uh, in response to just feedback from students. Uh, You realize that that even though you've been teaching the course for many years and you know what the typical confusions are, still the way you explain something in one particular video might not have been ideal or it might have been prone to certain confusions. There are ways that you can clean it up. So there um, there are some smaller scale fixes that you might want to make. Uh, and that are important to make, just as you would make them in a face-to-face course. Admittedly, it is harder to go back and re-record and re-edit a video than it is just say things a better way when you stand and deliver in front of a lecture room. Okay, so, so there there is certainly a need to revise. Uh, there is also, as I um, mentioned earlier, um, a, uh, a need to consider other active learning. Form so other implementations of active learning. So it it may be that uh, so the one of the reasons for doing this was to find out what we could achieve with active learning and what we could achieve with flippidness as such. What we could achieve with recording videos as the primary first layer of instruction or as supplementary materials. There is uh, this prompts the question, well, what can we now do with this? What do we learn from this about other courses and the ways that we can implement it in other courses, All right? So there, 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 there may be ways that we want to, to revise these courses still within a flipped environment, as I mentioned earlier. Maybe you have two meetings a week, but still flipped. Um, there, are, there are ways in which we might want to try this out in some other courses, um, John Kerrigan, um, my um, my uh, another indispensable colleague, um, is uh, whose dissertation uh, is actually about Hybrid One Hundred and Three. Mm-hmm. Allison Iras, whom I mentioned earlier, also wrote, wrote her um, mm-hmm. dissertation about Hybrid One Hundred um, and Three. Uh, and and John is going to be flipping his One Fifty Two course this summer. Uh, which is a brand new venture, uh, and uh, we we look forward to, to seeing the results. He has already been doing various sorts of active learning things anyway okay, so so there uh, there are there are there are lots of new ventures to to explore, uh, and that was really one of the one of the motivations for, for getting the ball rolling with these courses.
0: So how have students responded to this non traditional setup?
1: Mostly. Positively, although it has taken some coaxing uh, to to persuade them that this is really learning, okay. right? So there is a strong prejudice uh, in in uh, in favor of the view that they're only really being taught if they're being taught in the traditional way. That if they're working through videos at home and then coming in and working in an active learning environment. They're not really being taught, they're teaching themselves. So the bottom line is they're learning and whether they hear me saying these things in person or they, they hear my voice coming through the speaker of their computer, the content is the same. Um, the, 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 the structuring of I talk and then they work on a problem, that's also the same quite by design. Uh, so, so in all the substantive ways, as far as the learning process, even at that initial level, it, it's it's the same. They have the opportunity to ask questions even outside of class, even while they're in that process of working through the videos, uh, e- even as they would in class. The, the students, interestingly who who might express some reservations uh, about whether this is really learning, I always ask them, well, How many questions do you ask when you're sitting in a traditional classroom? How much do you really raise your hand during lecture and ask a question? Perhaps they have more opportunity to do that when raising your hand during lecture means writing an email or posting to a chat room uh, than they would uh, in a traditional classroom. Um, so, So it takes some... It, it, there, there is, there is some communication process here by which we need to persuade them that that we really are teaching them. Uh, so that that's there is some resistance there, but for the most part, uh, students come around to the idea. They they really appreciate. They've they've given feedback. They really appreciate the opportunity to rewatch the videos as much as possible, um, and they um, they a- appreciate some. <sighs> Frankly, they appreciate the only having to come to class once a week. They're <sighs> when you visit classrooms and you watch other people teaching, uh, my job has entailed a fair amount of that. <sighs> This is not to fault our colleagues. It's to fault the format, the inherent limitations of the format. You do see lots of students sitting in the back watching Netflix, for god's sakes, watching Netflix, or texting, or or all these sorts of things. Oh, they they don't sit in the back to text. They text in the front row, right? (laughs) Um, But but, but the overt watching Netflix, that's more of a back of the lecture hall phenomenon. Um, With their headphones on and and, and whatnot, it's it's really remarkable. they, uh, for the most part, many students regard coming to class as a waste of time, uh, and, and we have really set things up to make maximally efficient use of class time, and the students get that. Mm-hmm. This, 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 we've gotten feedback to that effect. They do appreciate that. There, 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 there are trade-offs, of course there are trade-offs, um, but they do appreciate that aspect of it. Also, quite frankly. Students have complicated lives and complicated schedules. Uh, they The uh, hybrid sections are mostly offered later in the afternoon or in the evening. Uh, these accommodate students' work schedules, commuters, um, who, um, who who are trying to, to fit everything into fewer visits to campus per week. This makes a real difference to students' lives, right? This is... Um, this is Rutgers, the state university. We have all kinds of students with all kinds of, of situations, and it's so important that we, uh, that, that we meet their needs. Yeah. I, I will also um, say that it's... Um, because we really are committed to offering multiple formats, and we really warn students ahead of time what the hybrid format is about... The traditional format is still available, and and we really uh, try to make it easy for students to realize early on that that the hybrid isn't for them. Uh, we really try to make it easy for them to switch. So so uh, if it's. If they need a special permission number to get into a traditional section, we really try and make that happen. Uh, the the fact that I'm the one who gives the special permission numbers really helps. <laughs> of course, um, but but, uh, but that that's a, that's a, I, I take that as a very compelling reason to to squeeze somebody into a, a different section.
0: So, besides getting students to buy into this non-traditional method, mm-hmm. what have been some of the biggest challenges in in this process?
1: The. Um, so, so besides that issue of, of um, student buy-in, um, so, so the, the, the challenges are, the main challenges are things that, that we've already touched upon in the sense of uh, the, 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 the vast overhead in creating and structuring the materials that, that does make it harder to make adjustments on the fly. Okay. in In a traditional setting, I make lots of adjustments on the fly, even in of course i 've taught many times there's just less adjusting that you can do uh, in this very regimented format um, i I have to say one of the one of the benefits though of that limitation I should have said this earlier uh, there's no such thing as falling behind in this format, so one of the one of the pitfalls of the traditional format is that there's this idea that uh, unless the instructor says it live in person in the classroom it's not on the record Uh, and so there's this mad dash to get through the material during classroom hours uh, and that undermines other things that are valuable like having the opportunity to, to solicit student input or to take student questions here, that problem is eliminated. Uh, So, so there is, um, there is inherently a set of videos designated for each week. Those are the preset materials. You have a week to do it, you know, and, and, and there is, um, I, I've, Carefully timed them, you know I've really tried to work it out so that the, the total time commitment is the same for the student in the hybrid format as in the traditional format. Um, that's, that's one of the reasons for having, that's another reason for having only one meeting per week uh, to make sure that the number of hours comes out right. Um, so, so there are um, it, it, it's that regimentedness has pros and cons. And so, so, as I mentioned, some of the cons, uh, that, that, that there is some cost in, in flexibility. Let's remember what all the pros are. And, and the, the, the fact that there's no, no longer such a thing as rushing through the presentation of the material, there's rushing through other things, uh, but there's no rushing through presentation of the material. That, that's a significant advantage. Uh, other challenges. Um, so, in the ag- aggregate, overall, the pedagogic benefits are real, Um, But it may still be that an individual student at this particular stage in that student's life finds it very hard to rise to the challenge of sitting down and working through all the videos. I think it's something that anyone in principle can do. It is a very good skill to develop. but some people do find it hard, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, n- n- if you've just spent the first 18 years of your life, which at that stage is all 18 years of your life, being lectured at, suddenly uh, to, be, to be learning in, in a different format, it admittedly that Look that 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 can be hard and uh I'm I'm sympathetic to that. It, it it is it is I do take seriously the duty of the the professor to to find a way to reach that student and there are there are ways to do that through office hours and warmly inviting students to attend them. Um but, 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 yes, the, the, I, I, I will say that 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 does have to be counted as one of the the challenges of the process.
0: So have you found that you mentioned this briefly before, um but have you found that the ways that students see you and interact with you are similar to or different from a traditional uh, setup?
1: That's interesting. Uh, yes, uh yes. Uh, In many ways, the interaction is different, and there are pros and cons to that. That ability to have the face-to-face conversation with every student in every class meeting, however briefly, that's precious. And and students, that establishes a certain kind of rapport, and you get to to witness your student's thought process in a different way than you can in a traditional classroom. Um, and that means that the students see me in a in a different way, um, and 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 they they have a, a different kind of um, they have a different kind of experience than they otherwise would. Um, on the other hand, seeing them once a week hurts. Uh, once a week instead of what, twice, that, that that does hurt. That that does hurt, and the, and the fact is. The, the contrast here in the 10 x course is, is not between a gigantic twice-a-week impersonal lecture and the flipped hybrid format, because the, the, our, tradi- our version of a traditional format still has classes of at most 35 or 40 students, and frankly, it is a lot more interactive than the traditional large lecture. Um, there, there is a certain kind of serendipity uh, in, in the presentation and the interaction, um, in in the traditional version of these courses, that I do miss, and I, I'm sorry to lose, um, and and that too, I, I I gather that that something is lost from the student's point of view as well. Um, but uh, so so for, from that point of view, there are, there are pros and cons. There are pros and cons. If I had a choice, however, between this kind of a format. And the large impersonal lecture, I'd certainly prefer this. I'd certainly prefer this.
0: So we've talked about some of the challenges, but um, I want to end on a, a more positive note. Um, tell us about some of your biggest successes with this course.
1: The the students of uh, who have who have expressed in in personal comments or in the the course uh, evaluations at the end who have openly said that they really liked the ability to replay uh the materials um that is um that that's a wonderful thing the ability to replay them to work at their own pace some of them have really said that that made all the difference uh and so that that is a wonderful thing. That means that the intended advantage, the, the course is working as intended, the, those advantages are real. Frankly, I, I, I would take, though, as part of the import of your question, the 10X courses, in, not to separate the content of the courses from this particular format, because part of the success of the courses is that it is persuading students that they can do mathematics. And if I'm persuading them that they can do mathematics and it really has something to do with their lives and it really is preparing them for real life and that it coheres well with the rest of their education, whether we're doing that in in two meetings a week or in flipped hybrid, I am delighted that that, that they're coming away with that impression either way. Um, Something else that uh, I think is good news is that students continue to take these 10X courses in spite of... The, the availability of, frankly, much easier courses. We tell them there are easier courses available uh, that satisfy the core requirements for the quantitative courses in other departments. Um, and th- this is this is a, a well-known thing that there are easier courses available. For sure, there are courses easier than 104 available. And um, students are taking them anyway. Students are taking them anyway. Um, so in 104, there's a certain interesting human resources management. That major has a quantitative requirement that has a short, narrower list of options. Uh, 104 is on it, and 103 and 106 aren't, and other courses aren't uh, in other departments, uh, that are acceptable for the SAS core. So we, we have lots of human resources management majors who are taking 104, but but that's great. They're they're actually I, I'm delighted to have them, and and they're good students. Um, there, but there are other people who are taking 104, uh, and I'm I'm delighted to to have them. Um, so that that is also uh, that is also good news. Something else I want to mention is that this is. Um, it's not just that when I, when I teach these courses, okay, then I get to do my little bizarre uh, idiosyncratic version um, and, and run them hybrid. It, for several years now, other people have been teaching them and and for a long time they've been teaching them in, in, in traditional formats, but now for several years other people have also been teaching them in hybrid formats. And we have a, a core of, of folks who are now experienced in teaching in the flipped hybrid format. Uh, and who are doing a great job with it, uh, that is that is good news also. So that it's it's not just a, a one off thing uh, that comes and goes with me, but it's now an established part of what we do as the math department. Um, that also suggests uh, kudos to my colleagues in 10 x for demonstrating the viability of the model as such. Uh, and this raises the question that. Well maybe we can adapt it to to other courses or some some variant on it to other courses there is uh, that and that frankly is the um, that that would be the real prize and uh, that's uh, I think that's the the, the the last thing I want to say in answer to this question that that it it, it um, gives greater hope that we can solve the the problem of how to introduce active learning it's hard to do it really takes a lot of planning and and willingness to do something new Um, i don't fault anyone who who feels nervous about about teaching in an entirely different way from how they were taught and from how they have been teaching Uh, so so it is um it's a it's a big step for faculty colleagues to make um but my my hope is that we've demonstrated that it is, it is a genuinely viable possibility and that we can extend it to two particular types of courses. There are courses in the calculus sequence uh, that are tragically a bottleneck. Uh, there are students who don't major in the STEM major they had in mind because they fail calculus. That is, that is a problem. It's an equity problem. Quite frankly, it's an it's an accessibility problem, and, and that is something that, as an institution, we need to address. Um, now, I, I'm not saying that we're going to get a 100 percent pass rate. If only we tweak the pedagogic format of, of calculus, I wish, I wish. But calculus is inherently hard, um, and um, and it's not necessarily the case that everyone who gets the idea that that they want to be a STEM major when they're just coming to college or who are under tremendous pressure from their families to become engineers and they don't really want to be engineers, it's it's not clear that they should all go ahead and become engineers anyway. Um, so so uh, solving the problem of calculus, though, if we can get the, the DFW rate, the rate, the percentage of students who register for the course and end up with a D, an F, or a withdrawal, if we can get that down... From forty percent in Calc two to a mere thirty percent. Think how many calculus lives that would be saving. How many math lives that would be saving. How many STEM lives that would be saving. Um, That that would really uh, make a huge difference. Another uh, another group of it has to be said that we are already doing some kind of active learning in the in the workshops, uh, the, the one once per week meetings that supplement the twice-a-week lectures in Calc 1 and Calc 2, uh, but there is, th- th- there is much reason to think that if we could introduce some active learning elements to the lectures themselves, that would make a difference, and we'd get a bigger payoff out of the, what we do in the workshops. Then there are the courses, the, there are upper-level courses that are large lectures of typically 80 or 90 students linear algebra is one example probability there are several others that have no third meeting a week in smaller groups you know calculus does but these courses don't so so they have the disadvantages of being large large lectures but they don't have a smaller and potentially more interactive environment um, as part of the course structure and they can't because they're only three credits so it would be fantastic to introduce some kind of in-class active learning strategies to those, and um, we'll see if we can make, maybe make that happen in probability this spring. In which case, I'll be looking for the right TA. I think I might know someone who would be a good candidate for that.
0: What advice would you have for someone who's considering taking a course that exists and turning it into either either hybrid or flipped or some amalgamation of the two? Mm-hmm.
1: Part of the advice is actually the same as if you were creating a course from scratch, and that is think carefully about what the learning goals are and work from there. So in the same way that you don't want to adapt the course to the textbook that has been imposed upon you, um, if a textbook has been imposed upon you, you don't want to adapt the course to the learning format just because you want to use that format. Uh, I think, unfortunately, this has been the case with a lot of online, fully online learning and the creation of many fully online courses that for pragmatic reasons, uh, for institutional pressure, reasons of institutional pressure, uh, there is a move to create fully online courses in various subjects, and the onlineness is the primary goal, and then other things are meant to adapt to it. Uh, and that that is very unfortunate. I think that does not produce the best outcomes. So so I have a clear idea of what you want the students to be able to, to do at the end of the course, what kinds of questions you want them to be able to answer, what kind of skills you want them to have, um, what kinds of explanations you want them to be able to articulate, and, and work from there. Think about how the hybrid format, the flipped format specifically are going to facilitate that. That's a hard thing to think through. That, that really requires a lot of thinking. But frankly, it's thinking that you're going to need to do anyway in a traditional format. If you've already done that thinking for an existing course, and now the question is how to adapt it to a, a flipped hybrid format, uh, one thing is. Plan far ahead. Do not try to do this on the fly. Um, it's, uh, it, it really takes a lot of planning. You really want to have the ability to, to screw up and go back and, and fix things before the course goes live. Um, so it, it's, don't underestimate the, the time that it takes to, to do it. Um, but also... In light of the issues we discussed earlier about how you really want to have flexibility, also and the ability to go back and revise, if not in the moment, in the middle of a course, then then between teachings of the course, don't be too much of a perfectionist. I would say about creating the video materials. I, I think that you really um, you you, uh, you really want to be able. You, you don't want to have been such a perfectionist that it becomes impossible or unrealistic or too daunting to go back and make revisions as needed. Also, I would say find out what colleagues have done. You know, not necessarily in the same department or the same field. It was very valuable to me to, uh, to, to find out at this conference what, what other mathematical colleagues had done at very different schools um, with very different situations um, and uh, it's also illuminating to find out we have all kinds of work going on among our colleagues at Rutgers. I have the the honor and good fortune to sit on the SAS curriculum committee, which is truly fascinating. And so I get to see every course in every department in SAS bef- you know b- before it's offered, and that includes hybrid and online conversions of existing courses. And it's just fascinating to see what people are doing, and people are coming up with very different. Ways of implementing these formats. Um, one interesting thing that I've learned from colleagues in other departments who are doing this is that in, in courses that rely heavily on discussion, so classroom, where dis- classroom discussion would be a key idea, or sorry, a, a key component of learning process, the, what they often report is that students open up more. In an online chat environment, where there is still accountability because they still have some kind of a username that that is traceable to them, so they can't can't say God knows what. Uh, they can't say say things that would cause their ABC show to be canceled.
0: Okay, yeah. um, but
1: they, uh, but they, um, you know, but they can. They feel freer to speak about things that are delicate or controversial. So there, there are you find out that there are substantive pedagogic advantages to formats that you would have imagined only had disadvantages. Uh, it, would be, um, it would be interesting to, to... It's always interesting to find out also from the, the, the personnel at Rutgers who are, are supporting us with technology... Find out what the options are. What the current options are. The options have gotten better since I started this process. This is one of the reasons why I want to re-record the 103 videos in particular. I recorded, I, I, God, I, I um, I, I recorded them on on what is now the equivalent of, of a clay tablet, <laughs> uh, which is to say, uh, I, I annotated. I, it, it, it was adequate to the purpose mm-hmm. and, and serves the pedagogic needs, but there are better ways to do it. So so I, I was um I was recording onto an iPad as I annotated on the iPad. Okay. All right, there's a wonderful program called Explain Everything that lets you do that and lets you edit mm-hmm. and that that works all right. Mm-hmm. But you know, you get better audio by using um Camtasia and, and using your laptop and plugging in a better quality microphone. Mm-hmm. The, the, so there are there are better options now and there will be better options a year from now so finding out from from the tech folks what what the options are is also a, a very important thing that I would advise anyone to do
0: my thanks again to today's guest professor michael wenger for sitting down to tell us about these courses and their flipped and hybrid models any resources mentioned in this episode will be posted on our show notes at tapruckers.wordpress.com. You can also find more information on our website at tap.ruckers.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing with a friend. Until next time, thanks for listening.